Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this evening, this opportunity to come together as a community, as friends, as those who are seeking the kingdom, seeking to follow you as your disciples. And we pray, Lord, that as we dive into the words of sacred scripture, that you would speak to us. These words are ever ancient and ever new. You spoke them in history 2,000 years ago, and they still continue to speak to us because they are infused with the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Lord, that these words would inspire us, challenge us, and that we would be open and ready to receive whatever you have in store for us tonight. You knew each one of us would be here tonight in our unique lives, our unique stories, and our unique needs, and you are waiting to meet us here. And so help us to be ready to receive whatever you have for us. We pray that you would remove any worries, anxieties, distractions, doubts, or fears from our minds and hearts, and allow us to fully enter into this time we lay this hour at your feet and ask that you inspire us in our reading, in our reflection, in our prayer, in our conversations with one another. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Please come in. Have a seat. Join. join make some new friends. So uh, we, there's Bibles over here. There's uh, places to sign up for our email list if you'd like. Uh, and we're going to begin tonight in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. Matthew 24, 36. Welcome, welcome. So this is the, up, the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the first Sunday of Advent. And if you don't know, Advent is the beginning of our liturgical year, our church calendar. And so we're beginning a new season, a new cycle of readings so every Sunday we go through a cycle of uh, different readings, and this year will pre predominantly be in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you remember, when we started this Bible study, we were in the Gospel of Matthew. And so uh, we're kind of coming full circle, which is pretty cool. Uh, and so we'll be diving back into that Gospel, and that begins tonight in our Gospel for this upcoming Sunday. So even though we're entering into the season of Advent, we're preparing for Christmas, we will in the coming weeks hear a lot of those birth narrative stories of Jesus his genealogy, the story of the Annunciation, but we don't get there just yet. We're still remembering the fact that we just celebrated Christ the King yesterday, that the end of time will come again, and so this reading is more on the apocalyptic side about the end of time and the second coming of Christ. So we're going to read Matthew verses, uh, chapter 24, verses 36 to 44, but the gospel reading actually starts on 37. That's kind of mid-sentence, so we're just going to read this whole section, the unknown day and hour. So, paint a picture for you. Jesus is preaching in Jerusalem at this point. He's uh, there in Jerusalem for the final week of his life. And this is his final sermon. Matthew's chapter 24 and 25. Uh, he's been asked, when will the sign of these things happen where the destruction of the temple will happen? And when will the end of time happen? He's been, he's been asked these two questions simultaneously at the very beginning of Matthew 24. And so all through Matthew 24 and 25, he's answering both of those questions. This section we're reading is specifically about the end of time and his second coming. So he's answering that question. And this is kind of smack dab in the middle of both of these two chapters. So we're going to read this twice, first time through, just to get a picture for what Jesus is saying here. He's probably preaching in the temple area, uh, speaking to his disciples and the crowds gathered, his final sermon, public sermon, uh, to all of them about the end of time. Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark, 
They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away. So will it be also at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be out in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on which day your Lord will come. Be sure of this. If the master of the house had known the hour of night when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. So too, you must also be prepared. For at an hour you do not expect, the Son of Man will come. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing starts off the first Sunday of Advent like a little doom and gloom, right? So we're going to read this a second time. And the second time through, I invite you to listen uh, more intently to the words. Maybe you have a picture in your mind of the scene here. You've heard kind of the message that Jesus is preaching in this passage. Now I invite you to listen more personally and see if a particular word or phrase stands out to you individually. It doesn't have to have anything to do with what the actual passage means, but something just resonates with you, connects with a memory, a thought. Maybe it just stands out to you in the passage. You hang on a particular detail or thought, whatever it is. Pay attention to that. You can underline it, reflect on it, and be asking and reflecting, why is this standing out to me? Lord, how are you trying to speak to me through this word, phrase, or detail? What might you be compelling me to do? So let's do that the second and final time through Matthew 37, starting in verse 30, or 20, sorry, Matthew 24, starting verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away. So will it be also at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be out in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on which day your Lord will come. Be sure of this. If the master of the house had known the hour of night when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. So too, you also must be prepared. For at an hour you do not expect the Son of Man will come. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, reflect back on this passage and the things that stood out to you, what details resonated with you, a word, uh, an image, or a question maybe that was posed. Hey, I noticed this. What is it about this passage? And we're going to take about five or ten minutes for you to discuss those things that stood out to you, questions that you have with the people that you're seated with. Uh, feel free to combine other tables if you would like. Uh, but... We'll spend about 10 minutes doing that. If you're watching or listening later, please share your feedback with us. But for those of us here, uh, we'll do that at our tables, and then we'll bring it back for a larger discussion. I'd love to hear what are some things that are standing out for you, questions that you have. Daniel, yes. Yeah, so, so angels are created beings, okay. so they're, they're non-corporeal, meaning they don't have a body, they're all spirit, so they're not all-knowing. Um, they're given the level of knowledge that God has revealed to them. They, are, they have a far superior intellect than we do, uh, especially in our current fallen world with sin being a part of the picture. We don't necessarily know if in our glorified form, once sin is no longer part of our experience, if we're going to be on the level of angels or not, if we'll be above them, below them, on that we don't know intellectually. Um, but we know that the only one who knows everything is God. 
I think the problem with this passage is very difficult for people is the nor the son part, right? Because this kind of messes with our idea of the Trinity. In fact, this was so hard for some people when they were some scribes, when they would copy this, they would leave out nor the son in early uh, Christian scribes. They'd find old manuscripts where nor the son is absent. Um, and luckily, we have scholarship and history, and we know that they did that. We could put it back in. But because it was so hard for them to understand, it seemed like it was supporting the heresy of Arianism, which was a huge heresy in the early church, almost completely um, derailed our theology of the Trinity. Um, so if you, if, you know, the Council of Nicaea, where our creed comes from, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that came out of the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. And the Emperor Constantine called this council because there was this dispute. And he was now the emperor in charge of Christendom. And when there was a dispute that was part of Christianity, it was now a civil matter, and he wanted to get this resolved. He and a majority of the people at this council believed in the heresy of Arianism, which was put forth by the heretic named Arius. And it was that Jesus was simply a man. He was not God. He was not divine. He had this supernatural connection to God, and God was able to do supernatural things through him. But they believed because of passages like this that they couldn't reconcile, and because Jesus died, they couldn't comprehend the fact that how could this person be God? And so you may know the famous story. I've shared it here before. One of the proponents or the the, uh, people against Arianism was St. Nicholas, also known as Santa Claus, who uh, punched the heretic Arius in the face, which is an, an amazing new image of Santa Claus, if you didn't know that that happened. Uh, he was then imprisoned, and uh, they continued to dispute, and they came back to St. Nicholas and found that an angel had ministered to him and given him uh, the holy scriptures, the holy writings to read. And they were so moved by this, they let him back into the council. And through the deliberations, Arianism was actually defeated. And then we have the Trinitarian theology coming out of that council and subsequent later church councils because of that. Uh, So we have an understanding of what is clear in Scripture, that Jesus is God. I mean, he says that himself in many different places, and so we can't refute that. What we have to reconcile is why this says, nor the Son. Uh, And so I want to point to a couple other passages here. Uh, There's one in uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. And what's interesting is they ask Jesus a similar question here. This is now after Jesus has risen from the dead. So the passage we just read, Jesus has not yet been crucified. The passage I'm about to read to you, he's already been crucified, he's risen from the dead. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, uh, well, let's say verse 6, they gathered together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He answered them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So notice there's a distinction here. He's no longer inferring that he does not know. Now he's saying it's just not for you to know when they ask him. Okay? Before, he implies that he doesn't even, he says directly, the son, me, I don't know. But now after in his resurrected form, when it's clear that he is divine, he now is expressing that he knows. Okay, so there's a difference there, right? And then this kind of comes to fruition in this famous Christ hymn, Philippians chapter 2. You've heard this many times. It's the second reading at Mass, like several times throughout several liturgical years, uh, where it says, Have among yourselves the same attitude that is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance. So what this is revealing is what's called in our church the hypostatic union, which is a fancy way to say hypo meaning two, static meaning persons, that Jesus has two person or personalities, two states. He, has a, uh, he is fully divine and he is fully human. He's 100% God. He is 100% human. I know that equals 200%, but one plus one plus one also equals one in the Trinity. And we don't know how that works, but God can go outside math and the laws of physics and time. And so we know that he was fully man, else he wouldn't have been able to die. We know that he's fully God, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to rise. And so the church named that doctrine the hypostatic union. And so in different instances in scripture, Jesus will show us his humanity. And he'll show us and model for us how we are to be in relationship to the Father in moments of doubt and moments where we don't know. So in essence, in this passage, nor the Son does not mean that Jesus is not equal to the Father. Because in John 10.30, he says, uh, the Father and I are one. 
And the word there for one in, in, in Greek is hen. It means singular, like we are one and the same. We are unified. You know, everything that the Father has is in me. Like there's all those passages in the priestly prayers of John that we know that they are, they are the same. They are different persons, but they are the same divine being. And so, at the same time, Jesus reveals different things. He's showing his humanity. You uh, maybe remember this in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Let's see, let me find it. Jesus, uh, Jesus advanced a little and fell prostrate in prayer, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If it is possible. Now, do we think Jesus knew what was possible? Do we think Jesus knew what was going to happen? Yes, of course. Okay, but he is praying there with James and John and Peter, demonstrating in a moment of distress how we come to the Father. The same thing happens when he is on the cross. In Matthew 27, verse 46, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting a psalm. He's not actually saying, God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting one of the psalms. But it's showing there, again, his humanity. So that is the purpose, I think. Sorry for the long-winded description of that. But that is the purpose, I think, why we have this kind of like, this doesn't sound very Trinitarian. You know, is Jesus not on the level of God? Yes, he is. But because he humbled himself and became man, which is what we celebrate in the season of Advent, the incarnation, we have these glimmers into Jesus' humanity. And the scripture, the authors of scripture were intentional in wanting to include those to model for us how we are to come to the Father in moments of suffering, in moments of doubt, anxiety, in moments of the unknown, not knowing when the time is. And then Jesus then confirms when he's resurrected in Acts chapter 1, as I read, that he does in fact know. But it's us that he was modeling that for. That We do not know the time or the seasons. And so we must be ready. We must stay awake. Yes. When we're reading this, it's almost as if we were doing a continuation of Luke. Yes, yeah. But the one thing that we did we did focus on was on verse 40 and 41. Mm -hmm. that, that might be like the uh, justification for that Protestant promotion of the rapture. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, There's a, everyone knows the doctrine of the rapture is. It's a Protestant teaching. We don't believe it as Catholics. And it comes from here, but it primarily comes from, I think, a place in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, if I'm not mistaken. And there is a, a phrase in there in Greek about being taken up. And in Greek, the word is like raptusian or something. It's where they get the word rapture. And they believe that at, at some moment in time, before the second coming happens, like in its full fruition, that there'll be a moment at the very beginning where this, this moment happens of immediate kind of judgment. And those who are faithful and ready will be taken up, disappear, vanish. And those who are left are those who are going to suffer the tribulation that remains. And there's all these symbolic prophecies in Revelation that many of our Protestant brothers and sisters will take very literally and say, like, this is literally how this is going to happen. Lakes of fire, thousands of years of suffering, or thousand years of suffering, and things like that. All of those things in the biblical writings are meant to be symbolic. But in a lot of the very literalist or fundamentalist interpretations of Scripture, we get this kind of doctrine that is known as the rapture. So we do not believe that as Catholics. Um, we don't believe that there'll be this instantaneous moment and then half of everyone is gone. Uh, we do believe that we'll all be made known that Jesus is coming back. It'll be very obvious in the moment, but it, we're not, you know, that moment is the end. You know, there's not going to be a, a time for a second chance. You know, you're, so in, in a sense, there is going to be a rapturous moment in the fact that, like, it'll be instantaneous. However, that idea of the rapture that some will be taken up and gone, and then the rest of us are just left. Um, you may have heard the famous Left Behind series, the book series, um, that was written by, um, fun fact, the guy who directs The Chosen, Dallas Jenkins, his dad wrote those books. Um, it's a very, very popular Protestant um, book series, Protestant-based book series, about what happens to those who are left behind. Um, not good things, spoiler alert, not good things. So, yes, yes, Faye. So we were talking at our table that it kind of mimics what we read last week. How, mm -hmm. You know, there's the, the good thief and the bad thief. Yes. And so, like, this is kind of like that. Like, we get to choose whether we be the good one or the bad one, right? Mm -hmm. We try to be faithful. So that's kind of what we were thinking that that, that might mean, you know. Yes. 
two women and you know you're either a good one or a bad one like yeah. right? it's just how we walk in our faith yeah and what's interesting here is what does it say about these two people two men will be out in the field one will be taken and one will be left they're doing the same thing you know sometimes in our faith life we think like okay if i do all of the right things then that means that I'll be blessed and I'll be saved. And this passage is saying, no, there can be two people doing the exact same thing. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill, doing the exact same thing. One will be taken, one will be left. It's about the state of our heart, whether or not we have an actual relationship with God that those actions are flowing out of, or whether we're just going through the motions for our own benefit, for selfish reasons, or out of our own ignorance, we don't know, or we've rejected God, whatever it is. Those are all different, different states. And so we can't kind of bank on the fact that, all right, like, I know what the church teaches, and I can do all of the Catholic things. I can go to Mass. I can go to confession. I can check off the Catholic boxes. I can say my rosary every day. But if it's not deep in our heart, fueled by a passionate, loving relationship with Jesus Christ that fuels us into good works and service for others, and it's just like a, a comfort ritual we do every day to just make sure we don't go to hell, that's, you know, like I was sharing yesterday, if you were at the... Uh, whatever talk I gave yesterday, I gave like two talks yesterday, was it RCIA? RCIA, you know, there's a difference between doing the, uh, the bare minimum, you know, living for our life in such a way that we don't go to hell versus living our life in such a way that we're pursuing heaven. It's the same way of me living in my marriage just so I don't get divorced or so I have a vibrant married life. Same thing in my relationship with Jesus. Doing the bare minimum so I'm just kind of feel like I'm on good terms and if, you know, the end happens, like I'll squeak by. Or I have a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ that blesses others, overflows out of my life into others. That's the difference. Vicki. So is the one left behind then the one that's going to So in, this is the interesting thing, that in the doctrine of the rapture, yes, but it actually never says. It never says. And there's some things in Revelation that actually say those who are left behind, then there's actually that redemption comes later on for the people who are left. And so people who have the, the biblical teachings of the rapture, it's actually very confused versus what's really in Scripture. You don't really know, like, are the taken those who are just condemned? And there's like, poof, you're gone. You're eliminated. And then the rest have to suffer this tribulation and persecution like Jesus promised we would all suffer for our faith only then to get to redemption. Uh, or are those who are taken up automatically brought into the kingdom of God? So those who believe in the rapture would say, if you're taken up, that means you're good. That's what they would say. That's how they interpret it. But if you really are honest about your interpretation of all of the scriptures that support the rapture, it doesn't clearly definitively say either way. Yeah. Joe. I thought that effectively the second half of the passage is very effective called the action. Mm-hmm. Uh, like any good sermon. Um, unlike a lot of the, the sermons and the parables that Jesus gives, a lot of them aren't super relevant to us in the 21st century, but this one is. Because you think, well, what do you do to keep your house from getting robbed? You don't, like, stand in the doorway, you know, all night, every night, you know, clutching your gun, just waiting for somebody to come in. Yeah. You know, make sure your door is locked, you invest in some security, and you go about the rest of your things. Like, that's a very straight parallel to kind of how we're supposed to be doing it. Like, you know, frequenting the sacraments, making sure, like you said, we have a... Uh, like a legitimate relationship of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then when it happens, it's like, all right, I'm prepared. I already made preparations. I'm good as opposed to, you know, being one of those people, uh, kind of like what you brought up, you know, just knowing what's going to happen next week or knowing when, it, you know, if you didn't know when it was, was going to happen, you'd probably just wait until it got really close and then make all the preparations there. Mm -hmm. Which it's that's not what Jesus wants. Yeah. You know, depending on your translation, whether or not he did know um, like Jesus didn't know when it was coming. Whether I knew, it's it's not, he didn't tell us because it's not important yeah. for us to know when it is, as long as we're prepared. It might not happen, we'd be equally prepared for it to happen a thousand years after we die or tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And it would probably not be for our good to know. Because then, like you said, people would either get complacent or they would get super scrupulous and freak out, you know? And that would be the equivalent of like waiting at the door with the gun. You know, like so scrupulous, like I am going to be ready. And then the second coming comes and we face Jesus and he's like, you completely missed your mission and your purpose. You were too busy just guarding the door. You know, like, what are you doing? You know, so we can go too far in either direction. We can be too lax and too unprepared 
or we can be so overly focused on it that we get very scrupulous about doing the right things, being out in the field, grinding the mill, and recognizing it's not in our heart. You know? And in fact, if we're operating out of fear, then we really don't have a relationship with Jesus because Jesus tells us time and time again, the most repeated phrase in all of scripture is do not be afraid. And so if we're operating out of fear, then it shows that we have a lack of trust in God, that we don't think that he is a father who gives good gifts to his children, that if we are faithful to him, he won't take care of us, despite the fact that we may have very uh, crazy life paths or experiences, difficulties that happen to us. In the end, um, he will be there. Yeah. Ian. Kind of playing off what you were saying, we, we had the same idea, but also we kind of flipped it. Whereas maybe some people would think that the time is so short and that they don't have enough time to do the good deeds of the past, that then it's like, well, why not just give them to every temptation of the earth? Yeah. So, you know, and it's also the idea that, I mean, just as you were saying, um, as humans, like a lot of the time, we need to receive a message a certain way because we cannot consume it. Yeah. And in any way else, in any, uh, any other way, uh, I was just thinking, I was talking to a friend earlier about like when we're doing good things on this earth, right? We're trying to get to heaven, but I was just like evaluating my own life. And when I do good things, it's in such a, not that I'm like this amazing person, but when I do, right, I found that I'm never thinking like, oh, well, let me do this so I can go to heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, by human nature, by the psychology of how this is taught to us, it's become the practice. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know if this was like, these type, I was just reading this in, in Luke, right? And I had the same idea, like I couldn't I couldn't do it any other way. Mm-hmm. And just as a human, I, I, would, I would fail and it would be too hard. Um, and yeah, also the message of just like, you know, are we living out our vocation and and what is that? Um, like yeah. this, it always, it always, kind of hurts to read these things, but then you just kind of, you know, as you were saying, you read it and then, you know, you kind of forget <laughs> and then you just live your life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever had this kind of reflection or heard this, or maybe you've said it. I've heard this so many times. Um, you know, oh, I really want to get back into my relationship with God. I want to get back into my faith. I really want to grow spiritually. And those are all great things to say. But what Jesus leaves us with in his final sermon is basically a challenge, a commission to say, yes, that's great, but what if you only had today? What if you only had today and you had to make the most stark 180 degree turn back to me, the most profound difference, the most intense act of surrender to me that you possibly could today because tomorrow is not promised? What would you do? That is the mentality of the Christian who takes this passage seriously. That does not let the sun set, not only on your anger, as scripture says, but on anything left unrepented, unoffered, unthanked, unsurrendered. You know, we should be asking like for profound healing and surrender and inviting God into every aspect of our life every single day. Reviewing with a prayer like the examine where you review your day, thinking about the ways like, where did I fail today? And if I am given the gift of tomorrow, how can I do better? And not just assume like, okay, I'm on some kind of trajectory, I'm growing you know, I've got some plans, and, and that's all great. I'm not knocking that. I think we need an idea of, like, discerning where we're going and the path that our vocation is leading us, us on. But if we really understand the magnitude of the bad news of sin, that sin destroys, that sin brings death, and that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, how desperately we need repentance, how desperately we need Jesus. We can't do that on our own. We can't earn it. We can't check the boxes. We can't do any of that to assure it other than surrendering to Jesus and accepting that free gift of salvation. So if today was all that you had left, if today is all that's promised, if this moment is all that you had left, how would you respond? That is what these passages about stay awake are all about. Because staying awake, like I said, it was a term used on a watch in the night. Like it was your responsibility. You were the one at the post. They weren't doubling up. They didn't usually have enough people to do that. It was up to you to stay so utterly focused on the place you're watching so that the moment anything happens, you're triggered into action. That you are constantly ready for what is coming. Not out of scrupulosity, but knowing that you are, you've been prepared. You've been through the basic training. You know your role. You know your mission. And now you're ready when the time comes. Yes, sir.
I think one of the things that what you said evokes is the importance of and really like the immeasurable value of the present moment because mm -hmm. yeah, ever present. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, but a lot of these passages and even words like repentance and second coming for one reason or another are very loaded terms and often I think can invoke uh, anxiety in us. Maybe it's a little bit, maybe it's a lot. And I think that one of the things that like I've noticed is obviously we're dealing with Christ as a person and with a personality and people are remarkably predictable and one of the things that he says a lot is reminders to stay in the present like pick up your cross daily and follow me give us a stay on daily bread mm -hmm. do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself sufficient yeah. for today is its own evil today you'll be with me in paradise yes, today you will be with me in paradise so and he does funny things like sending off his disciples with like nothing like no food no money no weapons to defend themselves yeah. because you know the world was incredibly violent back then and there was no police it was just like lawlessness everywhere outside of the city um, and you have to think that with all of these things, like I only have the present where I'm sitting in this chair right now. Mm -hmm. And I used to get mad at that because I, like, I wanted things in the future, but honestly, it's simplifies things so much. Like, well, you know, I only have this little space and sitting in this chair and it's like, well, it's hard to like sit in a major way right now. Yeah. I'm sitting down. Mm -hmm. and amongst people and so when you boil it down to these like manageable bites it's a lot less scary and if it happened while you were doing what you needed to do it's not something you were just white knuckling a shotgun you know waiting yeah. at the door it's like you know you're okay the thief comes but the thief is my friend Christ mm. yeah and, and and you know you're reminding me how am I a good steward of what I've been given in this moment right you know like right after this is a, a series of parables, and one of those is the parable of the talents. Remember this parable where one servant is given, you know, five talents, one, two, one, one. And that's really, it's, it's why it's positioned here in this kind of ap apocalyptic discourse, this final sermon, because it's about what have you been given in this moment, and what can you do with it now, today? How can it bear fruit now? And it's the one who buries it away and is scared, or takes too long to act. And so one of, the, one of the, the best pieces of advice when it comes to discernment, like a lot of people may be getting anxious about, how do I discern what the Lord wants for my life in this season? What is my you know, particular vocation? If you're not in your vocation yet, if you're not married, a priest, a sister, single, like whatever it is, you haven't, God hasn't called you necessarily to your definitive vocation yet. One of the best pieces of advice for all of those is to simply be faithful to these small responsibilities God has given you now. Do the things you're supposed to do in your job, in your family, in your friendships. Fix the things around the house. Do the things that have been entrusted to you. Because as it says in that passage, you have been entrusted with small things you've done well, and so I will now entrust you with much. Come and share in your master's joy. The same thing is true for us each and every day. You've been faithful in small matters. Now I will give you great responsibility. So each day, we have an opportunity to be faithful in the small matters of the daily responsibilities that God has given us. And in doing so, we are training ourselves to learn how to say yes to small responsibilities every day. So when the big shifts come, when the big ask comes from Jesus, it says, okay, I want you to now veer left and go do this. I want you to change careers. Or this is your vocation. Or this is how you're responding to this immense act of sin, suffering, or destruction in your life or in your world. Now do this. We've been so accustomed and trained to saying yes in the small faithful things that it'll be so much easier to say yes to the big large things. So focusing in on that present moment is the only way we can discern. It's the only way we can be faithful long term. Because tomorrow is not promised, but today is the training ground for what might come tomorrow. That's why we stay awake. That's why we're constantly aware, constantly ready. Not to be afraid. Not to fear. And I'll be the first to tell you, and you probably know this already or maybe have, have experienced it, passages like this have been used in Catholicism and in the history of a lot of other churches to preach fire and brimstone -y type of sermons to just scare the hell out of people to try and scare them into heaven. And that's not a very effective way to evangelize. You know, it might capture someone's attention to explain to them how bad the bad news is, but then you also have to tell them how good the good news is. 
And we have to live in the good news each and every day in order to continue to be faithful. Otherwise, we're staying awake out of fear. Ian? Um, something I just thought of when we were talking about both of you about like, trusting God in every moment. Um, like if that seems to be how a lot of the rituals have set up, like the model for priests, nuns, brothers, yeah. right? They could be sent to any part of the world at any second. So there's a, such an immense support framework for them to live that mission on earth. And is, when was the idea of like a vocation for laity figured out? Like when was it decided that we need to also model that? Yet we are not called priests or nuns. Mm. Like how if they even struggle doing it? I know it's like an open-ended question, but like also I guess the question really is like. When, when did that idea start? Or was it there from the beginning? Or was it fostered like later in a council of the church? Like this idea of, of approaching that level of location in our everyday lives? Yeah. Um, so you could argue it's always been present because you'll find saints throughout the history of the church who modeled it. You know, I'm thinking particularly of Saints Zaley and Louis Martin, Saint uh, Teresa of Lisieux's parents, who were so faithful in their vocation that they inspired I think all of their children who survived childhood to become saints or up for sainthood, one of whom is a doctor of the church, St. Therese of Lisieux. Um, and so I think pretty much, I think all the sisters became nuns. I think all, all five of them that survived, if I'm not mistaken. One of them may not have been, but I'm pretty sure. And I think they're all already saints or up for sainthood. So people like that, I'm thinking of people like uh, St. Gianna Beretta Mola, who, you know, um, died being faithfully wanting to give birth to her child despite the threat to her own health. Um, so that's always been present, you know, people taking on that lay vocation and wanting to be radically holy in the ordinary moments of life, not being a priest, not being a nun. A, a huge number of saints in the past have been religious, you know, priests and sisters or some who are deacons, like St. Francis of Assisi was a deacon. He wasn't a priest. Um, but um, ever since the Second Vatican Council, uh, and there was theology about that developing leading up into that, but that's really where the idea of the laity and the mission and vocation of the laity was very clearly articulated, had, had been developed in theology leading up to that, but it was very clearly articulated to then be disseminated to the church to empower people into roles in the church that they had not previously had. So for instance, like things that we have in the church, like lector, uh, the greeter used to be called the porter, uh, the, the altar server was the acolyte. They were all degrees that you would ascend through in the seminary when you were studying the priesthood. And that's still true at some monasteries. I think they do it at St. Michael's Abbey. I think you have those different installations and different, and I think they do it at the St. John Seminary for those priests in the Diocese of Orange. It's, it's less formalized, but they do have those ceremonies for them where you're, in, you're installed as lector, then you're installed as acolyte. You start, I think you start as porter, you become a doorman first. Um, it's a good job to start out with, very humbling. Um, so, but anyways, those things then became opened up. You know, being able to help in the choir, being a Eucharistic minister uh, or an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion when needed, um, things like that. But, um, and then things like my job, you know, like, People like me who were not priests did not exist, you know, uh, in most places in the Catholic world before the Vatican, Second Vatican Council. So that's when it really, you know, exploded. And we're still really, you know, experiencing the ramifications of it. You know, we, we still are kind of settling in our understanding of what does that mean? Because some people took it way one direction, some people took it way another, and we're kind of now, only now, 60 years later, kind of converging on a, okay, what is this understanding we're meant to have? That's not so far in one direction or the other, but is really in the spirit of what the council actually meant. So it's still very new. Greg. Does it really actually always, actually always go back to the, actually always go, actually go back to the time of Jesus, like people like Mary Magdalene? Sure. The people you see in Gospels ministering to Jesus, mm -hmm. doing other things like that. Yeah. They're not apostles, you know, they're not anything... I mean, they're lay people, you know, in every respect, but I mean, they're still contributing that way, yeah. in a special way. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the apostles obviously became the new kind of hierarchy in the church, but there was an existing hierarchy in, the, in Judaism of Levites, priests, and high priests, just like we have deacons, priests, and bishops. Um, you know, so it was, it was a kind of a no-brainer that the new church would be set up in that structure, but there were plenty of people who ran house churches or people who were hospitable to people like Paul, like people like uh, Prisca and Aquila and, um, 
you know, Timothy's mother and grandmother, Eunice and I uh, can't remember her other name. Lois. Lois, yes, thank you. Um, people like that who are holy women or holy people in the early church um, who helped support the mission of Jesus and the apostles um, who didn't become priests, you know. And the idea of like lay religious women, or I'm sorry, uh, religious women um, being sisters and nuns, I don't, I don't actually know when that was formalized into, I, I'm sure we have, we can pinpoint the historical development of an order of sisters or nuns at one point. Um, I don't recall who the first was. Um, yeah, I don't know. My guess would be somewhere around the time of the poor Clares or maybe a little bit before that. Does anyone know, actually? First female religious order? But it was much later. Um, yeah, first formal male religious order was probably the Benedictines in the 6th century, 5th or 6th century, but yeah. So it took a while. Didn't know we'd be talking about that tonight. That's fun. You never know what's going to happen, you know? Yes, yeah. We are. We're all called to be saints. And so it's, it's, I find it very exciting at this time in the church, especially seeing those people who are up for canonization, people who are coming in as like their saints for canonization are being proposed as like these could be saints one day. A lot more people who are lay people, a very like diverse array of people from all over the world and not just kind of the typical where church was in Western, Western Christendom, priests, sisters, you know, they're great saints, you know, nothing against those saints, but uh, I, I imagine we're missing a lot of other people's stories just because they weren't well known from that time. They didn't write anything prolific. They didn't really do anything, you know, publicly extraordinary, but they lived in extraordinary holiness in their homes and inspired the faith to continue. And that really is our call. That's what we're all called to do. That's how we stay awake each and every day to the welcoming the presence of Jesus into our daily life is to be faithful to those small responsibilities. So even though I work here, I am a adult, you know, ministry coordinator at St. Timothy's and I preach and I give Bible studies and I do all these different things. My primary role in terms of how God has called me to bring holiness to others and what my mission is, is to, uh, is to my family, is to ensure my wife and my children get to heaven and I get there too. And that I am leading that charge and that we are faithful as a family together, seeking to be saints, not in some big public glorious way, you know, not seeking to be some apostle or, you know, some well-known, you know, evangelist, but, you know, humbly, that is my primary mission. That is all of our primary mission, to be saints in the areas that God has called us to. And so instead of thinking, you know, about like, you know, oh, I want to be that St. Francis. I want to be that person who's out there, you know, doing missionary work and traveling the globe. Like, yeah, maybe a small percentage of people are called to do that. But we're called to be saints and, and evangelists to the person in the cubicle next to us, the Starbucks barista, the person we would like to raise a special finger to in traffic, um, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, people around the Thanksgiving table that we wish didn't show up this year, you know, all of that, you know, those are the people we are called um, to be saints to, to evangelize. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yes, sir. It Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think you, you, yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think most of the people who became saints were so humble, they never would have recommended themselves. You know, there's some quote, I think, uh, maybe from Padre Pio in his writings where he says, like, the closer um, people become to be being actual saints, the more aware they become of their sin, and thus the more unworthy they see themselves. Yes. I think it also helps that if you read like daily entries of what saint of the day it is, there's not just one, there's like sometimes dozens. Oh, yeah. And it's funny that there are a lot of them that we just know a name. Yeah. And that's it, nothing. Like not even a date of birth, not a place, what it was, just it's been passed down and that's all. And I think that that's encouraging because yeah. I don't put pressure on myself to like, do like the, the people like on the top of the list they do things that are like okay so you're you're the Jeff Bezos of like this particular <laughs> yeah. like all these crazy things but it's remarkable that like the majority of them it's like sometimes it's a date of birth and they were a martyr and that's yeah crazy. or we maybe know they died around this day around, like yeah, yeah within like a 300 year time span oh yeah <laughs> on this continent yeah yeah there's an there's a uh 
I don't know what you call him, a slightly incorrupt saint that I've talked about before in the Vatican. He looks a little melty because he's very old, um, but his body is not decayed at the normal rate. He's an incorrupt saint. And he is a, a Roman soldier who was a, a Christian who was martyred. And it just says martyred sometime in the third century, no name. And you can see where his throat was slit. He still has his Roman armor on if you go see him in the Vatican. His body's on full display and he is not decomposed. Um, at least not 1,700 years worth. Like I said, he just looks like a little melty, so maybe a few weeks worth of decomposition, which is pretty miraculous. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, going back to that point, you know, there are so many saints that maybe, you know, we could say lived very um, ordinary lives, but in extraordinary ways. But I think of people who just aren't even named. Like, I think of the boy who had the five loaves and the two fish and was, like, bringing a picnic to his family or, you know, coming on his way back to market, and Jesus was like, hey, uh, here to spread the love, you know, <laughs> a few 5,000 people. And that changed the course of history for 5,000. And that's just 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, thousands of people because of the seemingly insignificant yes of one unnamed boy that we have no idea what happened to, no idea, you know, no formal canonization, uh, just someone in the background saying yes to Jesus in a normal, ordinary day of their life. And that became something extraordinary and life-changing for thousands of people. That's what we're called to do. That's how we stay awake. That's how we are good stewards of the gifts God has given us in the present moment. And we don't linger with depression upon the past and the things that we could have done. We don't linger on anxiety of the things in the future we do not yet know. We linger in the peace of the present moment and knowing what I have simply in this moment is what God has given me to use to build the kingdom of God. You know, what has God given me this for? How can I use this to bless others? And not getting caught up in the scrupulosity or the worry. Great. Can you explain one thing? Yes, sir. Okay, we were in Luke all that time. Yes. And now there's a new liturgical year. Yes. And now we're going to Matthew. Mm -hmm. Are we staying with Matthew for the whole next liturgical year? Yes. Yeah. So every year, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So cycle A is the, the year we'll begin on Sunday, and that's Matthew. Cycle B is Mark. Cycle C is Luke. And then for important feast days and during the Easter season, we typically hear from John. Uh, the parts of John that are not common to the other Gospels. And we usually don't repeat stories. So there might be something that we, uh, that we didn't read in Luke. You probably noticed we skip over parts as we've been going through Luke this past year. Those, that's because they're in the one other cycle, and we read them in Matthew or we read them in Mark. Um, and so, yeah, that's the three-year cycle of readings um, for every Sunday. If you go every Sunday to Mass for three years, you'll hear probably 50 to 60% of the Bible as a result because it cycles through those Gospels in that way. So, John, there's a year for John also? There's not a year for John. John is sprinkled throughout all three years for Easter season and special feasts. So it's all Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Correct. Yeah. But if you go to daily Mass, that's a two-year cycle, and it bounces back. And I don't think there's uh, – I think it just, depending on where you are seasonally, it just picks from whichever the Gospels. But I could be wrong. It could be like Matthew, Mark is, is daily cycle one, Luke, John is two. I'm not I'm – not, Sure, but I know it's a two-year cycle for daily mass. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, sir. Even though, even though uh, this is this is Advent and we're entering the gospel, I'm just finding tonight a real good recap of everything we've been doing over the last several weeks. Yeah. A real good positive spin, and I just wish that I could have had this in high school. I mean, the realization of the importance of living each day to the fullest in the moment, that one day, at yeah. one day at a time. If it would high school, you have listened. I, I <laughs> high school me would not have listened. High school me would have been like, dude, you know, I don't know what you're smoking, but I'm going to go do whatever I want, you know? Yeah. 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 Try. Yeah, anyway. yeah, I know, I know. We can hope, you know. And that's the thing, right? You know, we can look back and say, like, oh, I wish. I wish it had been different. I wish I had known. If only I had known. And yet, the beauty of God's divine plan is that he uses all of those things. He uses those misunderstandings, those missed opportunities, those mistakes that we've made. And they all become ordered somehow down the line toward our greatest possible good. And not only for us, but for the kingdom, for the body of Christ, for others. And it's often, Henry Nouwen writes a lot about this, it's often out of our deepest wounds that we're able to heal others. Often out of our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, our mistakes, that we are better able to relate to others and their mistakes and their weaknesses and able to evangelize to them. Because if we're all up like hoity-toity, I don't make any mistakes and I'm going to preach down to you, that's not very effective. 
But if you're going to someone to share the mission of Jesus Christ, it's just like one of the most profound lines in the Chosen series that I've talked about before that I love so much when Mary Magdalene is talking to Nicodemus. And she says, I was one way, and now I'm completely different. And what happened in the middle was him. And that kind of recognition, I was one way. We can meet people who are still in that way, still struggling with the things we've struggled with. And we can share with them that message of, I didn't understand. I didn't know. I wish I had known, but now I do. And I can use that journey Jesus has brought me on to share with you some insight that you might need to know. I think sometimes, you know, we've been talking about saints, we've been talking about all this awareness we need of the spiritual life, and sometimes we can get caught up in the like, I need to be a certain way to respond to this mission. I need to be a certain way to be a saint. No. We just need to be faithful to the things God has called us to, recognize that we cannot save ourselves. And that's why we have a Savior. And allow him to meet us each and every day. For some reason, as we close, for some reason, I keep get, getting hit over the head with this. As we've been sharing, Dorothy Day is just screaming at me in my ear. And there's this quote by Dorothy Day where she says, um, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. <laughs> and Christianity is a revolution. It's a revolution in our own life. It's been a revolution in the world. It will continue to be. And we might want to be like gloriously in front of the battle like St. Joan of Arc or preaching the messages of, you know, profound messages and profound inspiration like St. Francis of Assisi or whatever it might be. But first we got to do the dishes. So this Advent season, like what is the spiritual equivalent of you just needing to do the dishes? Being faithful to the responsibilities you have today, getting your house in order, your spiritual house, and refocusing on what matters. If today was your last, Set aside the, this is where I'd like to be spiritually. This is how I'm growing in my faith. If today was it, today was it, what would you do? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of this time. Thank you for the gift of this passage and how convicting it is, how encouraging it can be if we remember that we do not need to be afraid, that we have a Father who loves us, who knows us, and who is calling us constantly to himself and seeking to give us his love, his grace, and his mercy. But Lord, Help us to hear that challenge, to respond today, to not wait, to not think that we're not good enough or that we need to fix ourselves before you can use us. No, Lord, that you desire to work miracles in us and through us today, now. And so help us to respond in faith. Help us to surrender the things and let go of the things that we're attached to that do not lead us closer to you or that distract us from the mission and purpose you have in store for us. Bless us each, Lord, in the ways we most need it. Bring healing to our lives this Advent season. Let this new liturgical year be an opportunity for us to experience the fullness of the new self you call us to, the new self that we've been promised and that we've become in baptism, the new self that you are constantly seeking us to be each day. Help us to be faithful, to be saints, to be extraordinary in the ordinary moments of life, and to share the good news with the people you've placed in our lives. Maybe not in some big, bold, extravagant way, but just in the simple, faithful, joyful living, day in and day out, doing the things you've called us to do. Doing the dishes, loving our family, going to work, meeting deadlines, being joyful, not complaining, and allowing you, Lord, to be in all of it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.